You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Hi, I'm Tello, Cody's buddy, and I play drums here at, um, at the North Cane Chapel, and I'm also part of the production team. Before my life in Christ, I was like not the best person. I was like never treated my friends the best way. I was always like kind of like either rude or like talked behind their back like about them, made fun jo- or like jokes that everybody thought was funny, but in you know, contrast, it really hurt God, and it was like, man, that's not cool. After ex- I experienced my salvation, my identity really changed. Um, I started playing on the worship team. Like, all of that was like for Jesus. I listen- started listening to worship music because I knew it helped me grow in Him. I started reading the Bible more. I just started, you know, listening to sermons, and it really helped me grow in my faith. Like, I've actually been happier, um, like, knowing that Jesus is my Savior. Um, also knowing that there's people to go to just in case I'm sad or like need help figuring something out um, I can always go to somebody or like one of my friends that are also in Christ and like figure it out with them and uh, knowing that everything is um, Jesus you know Jesus matters overall at this point in my life nothing matters but Jesus like you know like no new shoes or new iPhone or new bike could ever like replace that amount of Jesus that needs to fill all the holes in my life. And it made me, like I said, joyful that I have hope from when I die, I'm gonna go to heaven and I'm gonna be worshiping him for eternity. My name is Chelico Spody and I've been made new in Christ. There you go, well done. I'd love to ask you a question, a question that we asked Cello before he was able to film that and and say that. The question I'd love to ask you is, who are you? Really, deep down, underneath all the other stuff, who are you? Some of our identity messages happen to us. We're a son or a daughter or a sister or a brother. Some of our identity messages are things that we choose for ourselves, whether that be a, a line of work or whatever. Who are you really? I want to let you know where we're going these next five weeks. We talk about made new. Today we're talking about identity, as I'm sure you may have guessed. This teaching series really came out of a conversation a number of us had last year, last um, October or so. We were gathered around and had a ton of coffee, and we were praying and thinking about you and our flock here at North Canton Chapel, and a question came up and said, what does it mean to really spiritually flourish? Like, what has to be in place in your life, not just to, like, do the Christian thing and show up at church and maybe read your Bible once or a time out of guilt, pray, not nearly long enough. Those are important things. We talked about them last February. But what else needs to be in place in your life for you to really spiritually flourish? And I would contend that there's probably at least five things. We're going to take the next five weeks and hit five biggies. There's more. 
But these are the five that we want to just kind of put above the fold so you can see them. And this week is all about identity. I think God's word was given to us for the purpose of our spiritual flourishing. Anybody agree with that? It wasn't given us just to bore us or to give us something to read. God gave us his word so that we could flourish spiritually. I think you're going to get a sense of what that means this morning. So, identity. Who are you really? Why is it so important? So this morning, I want to give you three declarations of Christian identity. For you note-takers, they're going to be three. I mean, one of the three separate pages, whatever you want to do with that. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. And we're not going to take everything on, but we're going to take a good chunk of it on. All right, so here's the thing that I want you to get, though. If there's one statement that I want you to just kind of hang your hat on today, it's this. The truest thing about you is what Jesus does for you. The truest thing about you is what Jesus does for you. Underneath all the other stuff that characterizes our identity, there's something deeper, lasting, and more abiding. We're going to get to that this morning. So why identity? Why start here? We're going to get to the text itself, but I want to give you a few reasons why um, I think, as a church, we need to talk about identity. And so this is going to be like just a little pull off here for a minute, but I wanted to, to raise these issues because I think they're pretty important for us. A couple of reasons why we need to talk about identity. I'll give you five. Um, first off, because identity is eternal. Way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God's word says that humans were created in God's image. That means that all people, all people, are individual image-bearing creations of God. And all people have an irrevocable dignity, intrinsic beauty, and eternal value just because we were intentionally created out of God's creativity and for God's glory. Just get right into application on this one. This is why I am unapologetically pro-life from womb to tomb in everything that that means. It's more complex than a political statement because it's not a political issue, it's a moral issue. If God thinks enough about someone to put his image on them, then we should care about them. So this is reason number one. Identity is eternal. It never goes away. Reason number two why I think the church needs to talk about identity is because identity is powerful. Identity has the power to rally others to your cause, right? If you're in band, you hang out with other band people. If you play football, right? Identity rallies people. We get our tribe this way. Identity also has the power to divide, doesn't it? This is our world. This is our news feed. And as I watch the division, like you watch division happening in our world more and more, here's something that I notice. We talk about these um, like artificial, flimsy, worldly divisions, these lines that separate people, things like conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, traditional versus woke, whatever. Have you ever noticed how all of those words are usually couched in identity language? Here's what I mean. Why do we say, I am a conservative, rather than, I vote conservatively? Why do we say, I am against this, rather than, I have concerns about this? Why do we do that? Because we're using identity language. Identity language is powerful, and when we use identity language, it sends signals to our own tribe, and it fires warning shots to our adversaries. 
Identity language is powerful. Third reason why the church needs to talk about identity is because identity is shifting in our world. We are a culture now built around the ability to personally brand yourself. We are forging our own identities and crafting carefully cultivated personas like never before. And those abilities have opened a massive door for a shift in identity. And here it is. Identity is becoming increasingly self-determinative. That means I am who I say I am. I am who I believe I am. I am what I feel like I am. And you've seen this. But before you, know, you wag your finger at the sexual revolution, this affects way more than just that. Because almost everybody in this room has a profile picture. Somewhere on your social media, somewhere on some bio somewhere, there's a picture of yourself that you chose. You have a bio line in your Instagram or your Twitter or your Facebook. It tells what you are about. And from political theories to soup recipes, we share things, content, that's consistent with our personal brand. Not only are you who you choose to be, but you are also who you choose to project. So that's the third reason. Fourth reason why the church needs to talk about identity is because our world is increasingly identity frustrated. <laughs> Here's something else I've noticed. is Even though we've been given the ability to craft who we are, we've been given keys to the kingdom, we are more divided, less secure, and ultimately less fulfilled. And so what that tells me is this grand forge-your-own-identity experiment is not working. I'm going to tip my hand here and say that the worldly identities that so many people, and I'm talking Christians sometimes, have chosen to adopt for themselves are deepening the division, heightening our frustration, and ultimately preventing gospel movement. Our world is a stormy sea, and it's sad to see so many Christians lashing themselves to the masts of sinking ships. We're frustrated and we cannot figure out why. Quick little aside, the more worldly your identity is, the more vulnerable it will become. Last reason we need to talk about identity is because I believe the church has a very unique message to share. Everybody's confused. Everybody's frustrated. This is a wide open door for the church to do what we've been called to do. And as I've meandered through these recent days, just like you have, I've been struck by something. God's word teaches that the church ought to be the one people who cast off the flimsy, failing identities that the world tries to put on you in favor of deeper, richer, lasting, abiding identities that God can give you. The church ought to be a people who believe that because everyone is created in God's image, that anyone is within reach of God's love. And tell me that isn't language that our world needs to hear right now. Nobody loves people like our God, and the same should go for us. So put all of that on the back burner for a couple of minutes and just let it simmer because that's what I mean by identity. I think we have a wonderful opportunity for us. But we need to take a look at one more thing before we get into the text. We need to go back to first century Ephesus and understand how the first century Ephesians, our spiritual great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, would have understood identity. So 
little cultural context for us. First century Roman world was identity obsessed. Perfection projection was a thing. You were who you projected. That's why when you think about like ancient Rome, you think about these like big ripped marble sculptures of these guys that have like perfect bodies, right? And women who just looked perfect. And you think about philosophers walking around in togas perfecting their mind, right? This perfection of the human body, perfection of the human mind, identity obsession was a really big deal. Identity obsession has a dark side. And it's to that that I want to turn for a few minutes. This is going to be really hard to hear for about three minutes, by the way. Infanticide, or the wholesale murder of infants, was a big deal in ancient Rome. It was common practice. And it was a big deal in Ephesus. It was woven into the fabric of Roman culture. So I want to read this to you because these are actual historical documents from prominent figures in ancient Rome. Romulus, who was the founder of Rome, wrote in the 8th century BC that a child could be killed if they were found to be deformed in any way. This is the founder of Rome. Cicero, the Roman philosopher, lawyer, and scholar, clarified what deformed meant when he said this in the 1st century BC. He said that deformity could take multiple forms, an unwanted child, a sickly child, a deformed child, or even the child of the wrong sex. And this one is really dark. Seneca, who was another philosopher and a playwright whose plays would have been acted out on the stage of the theater in Ephesus, who was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, wrote this. He said, Mad dogs we knock on the head. Unnatural children we destroy. We even drown them at birth, those who are weakly or abnormal. Okay, so that's disgusting. And it's horrific. And it was a very big deal in Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus had the temple of Artemis, the Greek goddess of fertility. And once a year during Artemis Fest, her temple was stocked with temple prostitutes. And so unwanted pregnancies were kind of common. And this became a civic issue. So much that a then world-famous doctor known as Serranus of Ephesus actually developed a manual for midwives where he specified the perfect proportions of a child's body, from the length of their limbs to the circumference of their head. And if they didn't meet the standard, you were free to walk down Main Street in Ephesus up to the city trash heap and leave them there to die. This carried no social stigma, no consequences. No one raised an eyebrow. No one would guilt you. They'd look the other way, or in some cases, they'd actually reward you for your ability, your choice, to perfect the purity of Rome. Identity obsession was even worked into the city planning. Ephesus had two main gates. On the north end, there was a gate. On the south end, there was another gate. This was the more popular gate. City gates in that time would have been like that Hall of Fame bridge over I-77. Right? Hey, you are here now, and now that you are here, here is what we value. Right inside the south gate, you'd be met with the immediate reinforcement of Roman culture. The trash heap was right to the right of the gate. A visual reminder of identity obsession. Then, with an earshot, just right next door is the Ephesian gym. Now, the Ephesian gym was like the Ephesian school. It's complete with four bathhouses, a lecture hall, and a stadium 
where Ephesian children would attend classes and get steeped in Roman virtue and work on their perfect body and their perfect mind. Imagine working to achieve physical perfection while just out the window is visible proof and an audible reminder of those who did not measure up. All in the name of Caesar, all for the glory of Rome, all to secure your identity. That's horrific. But now here's where things take a turn for the better. And I would say the beautiful. Against that dark backdrop of identity obsession, here's what the church did. First century Christians, particularly those in Ephesus, would head out to the trash heap and they'd bring discarded children home. They'd walk down Maid Street and then they'd courageously walk back with two or three under their arm and they would adopt them, which in Roman culture was a lifetime binding contract, sealing them as part of the family of God, and they would raise them. In fact, you can visit old Roman catacombs and you can see family tombs that say adopted daughter of or adopted son of. Helps to form a really complex picture of our spiritual ancestors, doesn't it? These are our people. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. And I share all that all because it helps to frame the words that we're going to read this morning. So all of that is introduction. Sweet. Let's get to it. This is Ephesians chapter 1. And as we read this, just listen to the words that Paul uses. We're going to read Ephesians 1, 3 through 13. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance and have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Tell me you caught the intentional language there. You think Paul's trying to get into their cultural heads and teach them something? All that language just rolling out of his heart. So here's declaration number one. I am in Christ. Declaration number one, I am in Christ. Let's take a closer look at what Paul's doing here. He starts with this hymn of praise to God the Father. And he says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A clue that uh, those who he's writing to have already professed faith in Jesus. Well, then what's he doing? What's he want them to understand? What's he trying to get across? He wants them to understand their present reality 
in light of what has happened to them sometime in the past. And so what follows is this like just torrent of past tense verbs that if you've got a hard copy of God's word, underline them, star them, highlight them, do whatever you got to do. So Paul just unloads. Did you catch it? In verse 3, he says he has blessed us. In verse 4, he says he chose us. Verse 5, he predestined us. Verse 8, he lavished grace upon us. Verse 9, he set forth his purpose. Verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, we were sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, all those words are a very special word in Greek. They're an aorist tense verb. All that means is that they are a past completed action. Past, in that they happened way back here before you can even remember. They happened sometime long ago in the past. They were accomplished. But not only that, they're a past completed action. Nothing more needs to be done to make those things real. Like the pizza is out of the oven. The pie is baked. It's sitting on the counter. Like it's all right here. It's done. This is all at God's initiative. But then Paul takes those verbs and he kind of like intersperses some other words, adjectives, and other verbs inside this opening paragraph. This is really, really interesting. In verse 5, he says, we are holy and blameless. In verse 7, he says, we have redemption, which he describes as forgiveness of my sin. Verse 12, we are to the praise of his glory, which means we exist for God's pleasure. And he's happy to have us in his house as his adopted children. Now, here's the thing. All of those words, every one of them, is an identity word. Did you catch that? They're all this like deep theological dive into who you really are. Those words, Christian, are who you actually are. Deep things that happened on your behalf in the past at God's initiative for your joy. Now follow me on this. Why did Paul start out this way? Really, what? Like, this is a world that is, or a church that is surrounded by a world of swelling darkness. Why doesn't he say, hey, just be courageous, guys. You got it. Just hang in there. Be strong. Be resolute. Faith over fear, right? Why doesn't he hide behind those slogans? Here's why. Because Paul understands that for a church to survive, their identity must be rooted in the sovereign will of a gracious God and not the fleeting trends of a capricious world. God gets to decide who you are because he knows you and he created you and he loves you. And here's why this brings me a lot of just personal comfort for me. Um, think about how that would have sounded on the ears of those in Ephesus. All those words, those beautiful, lasting, powerful words. Perfection, projection, Ephesus. If you aren't perfect, there's the trash heap, Ephesus. And then here comes Paul. And he goes, no, 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 no. You're adopted, you're blameless, you're holy, you're redeemed, you're chosen, you're sealed. And it just, right? just keeps coming out of them. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't stop to ask you if you're worthy before he died for you? Aren't you glad all the other identity messages and things we take on ourselves, he, you know, he just blows right past them. Aren't you glad he didn't stop to ask you your political theory before he died for you, your opinion about insert issue here before he died for you? Why? 
It's not because those things aren't important. They are. But the only thing that Jesus cares about are lost sheep who need to be found, prodigal children who need to come home, and hopeless sinners who need a doormat called grace. That's who you are. So that's the first declaration. I am in Christ. After this, like, anthemic opening in chapter 1, Paul's going to do something really, really cool. He's about to say, hey, okay, remember that thing that happened, like, way long ago in the past? This thing that happened to you? Because before we get up here and talk about what this means, let's go back, throw the car in reverse, and really understand this for what it was. He's going to give them an up-close and personal look at what happened when they trusted Christ. Now, this is maybe most of you in this room. Some of you not. Some of you, you haven't trusted Jesus yet. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to go, let me show you exactly what happens when somebody trusts Christ. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 2. Take a look in verse 1. And you were dead. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. That's the power of positive thinking for you. <clears throat> you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Yikes. You can write that in your margin there if you want. <laughs> and then come these beautiful two words of verse 4. But God... <laughs> being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And so here's your second identity declaration. I am alive. The second section is laid out like two sides of a vinyl record. Quick show of hands. How many of you know what a vinyl record is? I'm kind of, hey, yes! Way to go. For those of you watching online, our students usually sit up here, so that's why I was gesturing. We have a cool student ministry. They listen to vinyl. Verses 1 through 3 of this section are like side A. They have the same tone, the same mood, the same message, and it's not super positive. Then, right at the start of verse 4, there's this wonderful two-word phrase, but God, which the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said were the two most important words in all of Scripture. And then there's side B, which is 4 through 9. It just gallops into something totally different altogether. So let's take this apart. Verses 1 through 3. Paul describes the life of a person before they meet Jesus. A few things. Paul describes us in our natural state. Okay? This is us before Christ. And it's a really dire picture. Fourth word in. What's he say? For you were dead. You were okay. You were on life support. You still had a heartbeat. No, you were dead. No hope for you. Can't rescue yourself. 
Dead men don't get up off of operating tables. Big theological word for this is total depravity. It means that everything about me is touched by sin, and nothing in me can save myself. That on our own, we are not spiritually, basically, kind of, sort of good. It means we are spiritually, absolutely, definitively, inarguably dead, powerless. Not very optimistic. Second thing, though, Paul describes what this zombie-like, unliving life feels like. He gives you a couple of things in here. Take a look right in the text. He says, it's like you are living in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and your mind. And as a result, an object of God's wrath. Like, wrath, that sounds so Old Testament, doesn't it? Oh, what's that mean? It means that even though I lived a moral life, my sin still offends a holy God. God is justified in being wrathful toward me because I basically said, to his authority in my life. And then the thing that I like here, because Paul, at his, at his core, he was also a pastor. Paul did something really, really masterful here as he goes like, look, in verse 3, he says, we all were in this. Great pastoral move. He doesn't just go, hey, you guys got the problem, you fix it. He goes, no, I'm in there with you. I'm part of this. You guys remember Paul before Jesus, don't you? This terrible, like, Christian killing terrorist who pulled believers out of their houses and separated families and sent them to prison. And then comes verse 4, but God. Slide down to the verb if you're looking at it. Verse 4, but God made us alive. Side note, if your conversion story doesn't include a but God moment, you might be missing something. Brandon Marshall is saved not because I walked down an aisle, prayed a prayer, or believed something. That's visibly what may have happened. But what actually happened is that God did something on my behalf that I could not do for myself. And he saved me. He made me alive. Dead people can't make themselves alive. God moved. And then, what unfolds in the rest of this, in verse 4, is this like catechistic cascade of questions that just keep coming. Well, why would God do that? Why? Because he's rich in mercy. He's merciful to you. Yes, he judges sin, but he's merciful to you. Well, what would cause him to do that? Why would he be merciful to me? Because of the great love with which he loved us. God loves you. Well, when did he do that? Even when you were dead, he made you alive. Before you cleaned up all your junk. Before you got your spiritual ducks in a row. Before you had the answers to all your questions. God still saw you, and he said, I want that one. How did he make you alive? Now, this is the great thing here. He says... In Christ shows up together with Christ. And so you got to think about this for a second. That same resurrecting power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that made you alive in Christ. That's unbelievable. You were not an afterthought to God. It wasn't like God the Father's up there going, like, well, I raised him up, so I guess you're kind of worth it. No. You were part of his sovereign plan. Almost unable to contain himself, then like Paul just pushed this little thing in there and goes, for grace you have been saved. <laughs> he has to like slide it in there. And then comes this triumphant symbol crash at the end in verse 8 where he says, for by grace have you been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that nobody can boast. And that's this idea of identity declaration number two, I am alive. Now go back to first century Ephesus for a minute. 
Think what this meant to a people group who were surrounded by death, who were actually encouraged toward that. Think how this truth landed on their ears, that they have a God who saw them while they were dead, brought them home, and made them alive forever. Think how they would have heard that. Hopelessness to hopefulness, death to life. So we're going to get to this third piece in just a second, but we've got to park here for a minute. What side of the record are you on? (laughs) Do you know that? Do you know that you have life? Or are you just trying to be good? I remember when this, like, curtain fell off of my eyes, and I'm like, oh, man, I've just been trying to be good for a long time. That's not conversion. That's not life to me. Confess your sin. Acknowledge Christ for who he is. That's where this starts. Do you know that you have life? Are you still stuck on side A, verses 1 through 3? You just doing whatever you want? Indulging the passions of your flesh and of your mind? Or have you said, here, God, fix me? Identity declaration number three is coming up in just a second. Because you need to understand how this hits. This is like an exclamation point at the end of Paul's just identity diatribe. This is like the finale of a cymbal crash at the end of a symphony. Declaration number three, I am on purpose. I am on purpose. I'm in Christ, I'm alive, and I'm on purpose. One verse on this one because it's so beautiful and so rich. Verse number 10, here's what he says. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How does he describe us? We are his what? Workmanship. His workmanship. It's a great word. We're going to come to it in just a second. But it is interesting. We've got to think about here for a, th- for a minute. Christianity is not about what happened to you back here or even where you are right here. There's a big giant windshield and there's a distant horizon that God wants to call you into. You have stuff to do. You weren't saved to sit. You were saved on purpose, for a purpose. And this is not a message about living a purposeful life. That's something else. But quick aside we need to learn is that understanding what you're called to do over here always starts with what Jesus has already done back here. Maybe the reason why so many people live purposeless lives, just pinging around from pleasure to pleasure or idea to idea, like a pinball inside a giant machine, is because we're trying to get there without understanding what happened back here. Everything that you want to do that's out there, everything meaningful, is tied to what happens back here. Are you in Christ? Are you alive? That's where real purpose comes from, because he changes all of this for you. So, a few observations, and then we're going to figure out what all this means and what we have to do with it. First, how does Paul describe us? He says we are his, what? Workmanship. This is one of those rare occasions where the Greek word and the English word are almost the exact same, and we're going to stop because you need to understand this word. I'm going to say it. Tell me what it sounds like. Poema. What does that sound like? Poetry. Poem. Drop that in there. You are God's poem. Surprising. You ever written a poem? I don't think it'll surprise you. I have, and I do. You ever written a poem where you spend all this time like noodling the language and trying to communicate something, trying to get the rhythm down, shaping your thoughts, all to 
something that you want to get across. That's how God views you. He shaped you. He crafted you. He is shaping you. He is crafting you, all with the intention that your life might communicate something about him. Kind of begs the question, what are you communicating? If people read the poem of your life, could it be subtitled to the glory of God? Or would it be subtitled to the glory of me? Second observation, just real quick while we're in here. What were we created for? It's right there in the text. He says, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. One of my favorite Bible commentators puts it like this. You're not saved because of your works. You're saved for good works. God created you. He led you. He called you. He saved you so that you could do something. But then the coolest thing about this, guys, when were those great plans established? What's it say? God prepared beforehand beforehand. This is the heart behind David's word in Psalm 139 where he says, before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. Every one of my days was written in your book before as yet there were one of them. You are not an oversight. You are not an afterthought. You have profound spiritual purpose. But this does make me wonder, for me, when I read this, Am I pursuing God's will for me out of my identity, or am I trying to forge my identity out of my will for me? God's will for you is this, simple. It's consistent obedience over time. Do what he says in here over a lifetime, and you'll bring him glory. So what do we do with this? A couple minutes left. Three quick points of application. I just want to hit them, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. First, and this is the most urgent See that you have life. See that you have life. Here's the thing. If you haven't come to God, confessed your sin, and asked for his forgiveness that's available for you on the cross, everything I've just said is a nice history lesson or empty encouragement. It's interesting. You probably didn't know all that about Ephesus. But it doesn't ring true for you until you have life in Christ, and you go, oh, man, that's me. God did that for me. If you haven't made this personal, you need to. Second point of application is you need to say what Jesus has done. Say what Jesus has done. Anybody, anybody like tired of themselves yet? <laughs> I don't mean like in a negative self-loathing way. I just mean, like, I am tired of the sound of my own voice in my own head and the echo chamber of my own life. And, like, man, I want to start talking about better things, don't you? <laughs> I've shared this story with some of you, but really quickly. God brought a big mind shift to my life about two years ago. I was hearing an interview with a guy named Brian Chapel. He's a preacher, and um, at the time he was pastoring a church in Peoria, Illinois. And I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but here's, here's what he said, in essence. He's a preaching pastor, okay? So he said, I used to think that the art of preaching was trying to convince people to do something they don't want to do. And he goes, that's a terrible job description. And he goes, it shifted for me when I said, maybe the art of preaching is showcasing Jesus in a way that makes him unavoidable. And I'm going, oh, dang. I like that a lot. And that fits with me, what I want. Now, that's me as a preacher, but I think that applies to everybody in this room. What if the point of your life became not convincing people of whatever? 
but just showing the unavoidable beauty of Jesus to where they have to see him in you, how would your world be different? How would your life be different if the task was, I'm just here to show you Jesus. I'm just going to show you and say what he's done. Third point, show love. Here's why. A few weeks ago, we defined love as pursuing God's best for someone at great cost to myself. That is hard. That's really hard to pursue God's best for someone at great cost to myself. Love always costs you, and right now, it costs a little bit more because loving is harder. We just finished this 10-week series in 1 John where the constant over and over still ringing in my ear anthem is, if you love God, you will love your neighbor. And the church will lead in our world when we stop arguing with others and we start loving others. Here's how this dovetails into where we are this morning. Everything we've just looked at is an up-close-and-personal look at how God loves you. Let God's love for you be the fuel with which you love others. It's hard to love your spouse. Don't elbow them if they're sitting next to you. It's hard to love your kids. It's hard to love your neighbor. Hard to love people with whom you disagree, which is almost everybody right now, right? Why love them? Because it's exactly what God did for us. This is Jesus' ethic. It's so clear. He says, you've heard it said, hate your enemies. I say love them. Pray for them. Somebody hits you on the cheek, you turn the other one to them also. When you have to be forced to walk a mile with somebody, you go two miles. When someone steals your shirt, you give them your jacket. We want to punch back. Jesus says, don't do that. It's not worth it. It's out of character with our God. He doesn't do that. Let God's love for you drive your love for neighbor. That's what the church can sound like. And again, tell me our world doesn't need to hear that now. So here's where we're going to go. Um, typically, especially if you've been at the chapel for a while, you know the rhythm right now. We're going to pray a quick prayer, and you're going to stand and sing, and then we're going to leave. We're going to do something a little bit different today. Um, I want you to sit just kind of where you are. We're going to have a moment while the band comes back out. And this, this is really just a time where I just want you to sit and listen uh, to the words of this song. Some songs are really great to be sung. They're really easy to sing. This is one where to try and get us to sing it, would maybe be a little bit of a leap. And so I just want us to sit and have a moment with the Lord. And I just want you to ask him, who am I? Really? Who am I? And if you have business to do with the Lord, my urge for you, admit your sin. Confess it. Believe in Christ and then commit to live for him. He wants you and he's waiting for you. So just sit. Just have a moment of quiet. Let's pray. Lord, we do marvel at your goodness. God, we are dumbstruck at your grace for us, this great cost, this great work that you did to go get us back out of the trash heap of our lives, to bring us home, to call us your children. Lord, we say that we love you. Help us in these moments. Would you speak to us by your spirit? In Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, 
it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.